And at times, through Samuel's own account, the, the account of Samuel here, I think Israel would have agreed, you know, as they, they fought battle after battle with the Philistines. I think that's why they asked for a king, isn't it? Just give us someone who can lead us into battle and get rid of these pesky enemies. Or and perhaps you look at the problems in your own life, or the puzzles that you can't solve, and you decide that the leader that you really need from God is a brilliant philosopher leader, a, a teacher with all wisdom and all understanding, someone who can guide you through all of the mysteries of life. The book of Samuel, though, ends the way it does, I think, to teach us that we need something even more urgently than we need wisdom or power. What we need most of all in God's leader is something that we may not even be asking for yet. What we need most of all is a leader from God who can solve the biggest problem of them all. We need a leader who once and for all can atone for our sin. See that with me, would you, in three stages. First, see atonement's need. See the need for atonement in these chapters. And there are some uh, passages in the Bible, aren't there, where uh, the meaning of the text lies right on the surface. In other passages, you have to dig, and this, of course, is one of those. So let's dig together, and let's start by asking, before we jump into the details of the text, let's start by asking, what do these two stories in chapters 21 and 24 have in common? In both stories, notice, Israel is in trouble because of their sin. In the first, in chapter 21, the sin, have a, have a look to remind yourself, the sin in chapter 21 is blood guilt on the house of Saul. Saul that's how it starts, isn't it? Blood guilt on the house of Saul, which apparently was, had led to famine. There's the famine described there in 21 verse 1. Now, this isn't a, a brief uh, fruit and vegetable shortage in Tesco. This is a, a three-year famine. This would have been utter catastrophe uh, in the land. Elsewhere in the Bible, famines are so severe that Parents are, are driven to eating their own children. This is really serious. And in, add, add to that that in the Old Covenant, famines were customarily signs of deep and profound problems in Israel's problem, uh, relationship with God. They were, if you like, one of the, the, the warning lights, the flashing warning lights on the dashboard telling Israel that their relationship with God, the most important thing they had, was in deep trouble. And that it, unless there was an atonement, li literally an at one Unless something happened to reunify them with God, their relationship with him could be over. Well, that's what's at stake here in chapter 21. But what is this blood guilt on the house of Saul in verse 1? Well, we find out that it involves a people called the Gibeonites. They were descendants of the original inhabitants of the land. When the people of Israel first entered the promised land, they were under strict instructions to drive the locals out for their years and centuries of wickedness. But these Gibeonites, we learn earlier in the Old Testament, were smart. They pretended not to be locals at all, but visiting from out of town. And so Israel, wisely or not, made a promise to protect them, a covenant. And now we learn here in chapter 21, verse 2, that Saul, in his wisdom, or lack of, had broken that covenant and committed some atrocity against the Gibeonites. And the implication here is that this is the reason for the famine. A sin has been committed, their relationship with God is impaired, and the sign is famine. Now, there's an unpaid debt owed to justice. And until that debt is paid, 
the famine will continue. Well, we'll come back to chapter 21 in a little bit, but compare that with chapter 24, and you see something similar, don't you? Again, sin has gotten Israel into trouble, though as 24 begins, we're not told what Israel's sin initially was. Verse 1 tells us, have a look, chapter 24, verse 1, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And strangely, the Lord then, we're told, incites David to take a census of his people, and particularly his fighting troops. Now, why does the Lord do that? Well, we're not told here, are we? Possibly it was to give Israel's invisible sin a visible form. They were guilty in some way, but there needed to be an obvious and clear expression of it. Uh, Imagine a, a parent trying to show their child that they had a problem with sugar addiction. So they leave a bag of Haribo on the table. Now, the child already had the problem, but scoffing the whole bag of Tangfastics in five minutes would prove it, wouldn't it? Now perhaps the child will see. Maybe that's something like what's going on here. Perhaps a foreign army was marching on Israel, and the people of Israel were refusing to trust the Lord, and so the Lord incites David to show that lack of trust by counting his troops. Now, counting your troops or taking a census isn't necessarily wrong, unless, of course, it's evidence that you're not prepared to trust the Lord. David, later on, won't protest his innocence in this. He knows, for whatever reason, that what he's done is wrong. By the way, the idea of the Lord inciting David to do something wrong is puzzling, isn't it? How can the Lord do that without being guilty himself? It's maybe worth noting that in the equivalent account in 1 Chronicles 21, it's Satan, we're told, who incites David that's not a contradiction. Satan in the Bible does nothing without God's permission. The whole thing, though, is puzzling. We have to accept that. But it's no less puzzling, is it, than the cross. The most wicked act in the whole of human history, we're told, the murder of the Son of God, carried out by sinful men, planned in advance by God. God can be sovereign over it, even plan it without being guilty of it. And that's the case, surely, here. So in both cases, the big problem in Israel is their sin. And their sin, of course, had been their biggest problem from the very beginning. Think back to the beginning of their forming as a nation. Pharaoh's cruelty, of course, was a big problem, but their sin was bigger. Lacking food in the wilderness was a big problem, but their sin was bigger. Goliath was a very big problem, all nine feet of him, or however tall exactly Goliath was. Endless Philistine raiding parties all the way through the book of Judges and early Samuel. Constant fear of siege and plunder, they're all really big problems. But the biggest problem that they needed a leader to solve more than any other was the huge problem of their sinful hearts. And of course, the people of Israel here are simply a picture of the whole world. You go and stand by the flower stall in central Richmond with a clipboard. You ask people, what is the biggest problem in their life? How many people are going to say that it's their sin? What are they going to say instead? A cost of living crisis? A grief at the 
the ongoing war in Ukraine, government corruption, maybe it's a personal health scare or loneliness or aging, they're all problems. But their biggest problem by a mile is the sin that cuts them off from God. And doesn't this book end this way to wake us up to our biggest problem as a human race? If you're not a Christian this evening, your sin and guilt are massive problems. It doesn't actually matter who you are. According to the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, the Bible doesn't do what we do, which is to divide the world into the good and the bad, the heroes and the villains. The Bible levels the ground beneath the feet of all of us. Everyone has broken God's law. Everyone stands guilty in God's courtroom. Sin is everyone's biggest problem. And this is why we need to keep talking about sin here each week. Why we mustn't turn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into a, a sort of temporary therapy or a path to cultural transformation because those aren't humanity's greatest needs. Every human being's biggest problem, the problem that dwarfs every other, is their sin. And when we stop talking about that, we've given up on the gospel and we've given up on the world. But then second, see here, atonement's price. Atonement's price. What else do these two stories have in common? Well, in both chapters, for God's righteous anger to be averted from Israel, to be turned away, for their sin to be atoned for, and their relationship with God to be restored, a price must be paid. And actually, this makes sense to us when we think about it. I, forgive me, I've probably told this story before, but when I was a child... I decided to do a science experiment on the front window of the family home. I picked up a stone and I threw it as hard as I could through the window. And of course the window smashed into smithereens. Apparently my, my mum, baffled, asked me why I'd done it and I told her to see what would happen. I was a genius, you see. Now, my mum is a, a kind and a forgiving woman, and when I said sorry, she gladly and warmly forgave me. But here's the point. If that window was to be fixed, and it did need to be fixed, someone needed to pay. Clue, it wasn't me. And there's something like that going on here, isn't there? In both of these grim stories... For God's anger to be averted, for there to be atonement, a reunification of God's people with the Lord himself, there had to be a payment. And notice in both stories, the payment is death. This, of course, is why we find these chapters hard. In chapter 21, it's the death of seven of Saul's descendants. And this is difficult. It raises questions uh, that it doesn't answer for us. I mean, why seven? How is it that Saul's descendants can pay for Saul's sin? Is it, is it because he sinned as their representative? Or were they somehow complicit in what he did? We're not told. But death was the price. And in chapter 24, again, death. In the first instance, three days of deadly plague. Sin leads to death. And of course, the Bible is consistent on this from the very beginning, isn't it? When God warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the forbidden tree, he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
And this is why death was always right at the heart of Israelite life. It was right there, wasn't it, in the sacrificial system. Israel was a bloody place as animals were sacrificed as payment for sin. These hard stories are given to remind us that the wages of sin, the price for sin, is death. Sometimes people ask, don't they, what the difference is between, say, uh, Islam and biblical Christianity. You might have been asked that too. There's lots of differences we could point out. But one key difference is how seriously they take the problem of sin. Religions like Islam give the appearance of taking sin seriously. All of those rituals to perform and pilgrimages to undergo and washings and prayers and everything else that's supposed to deal with sin. But sin doesn't deserve a little washing of the hands or a little traveling to Mecca. The wages of sin is death. We know that Islam doesn't take sin seriously enough because Islam has no atoning sacrifice in it. It has no payment. There's a big hole in Islam where payment ought to be. It turns out that the God of Islam doesn't take sin seriously enough, but the God of the Bible knows very well the seriousness of sin. He knows that sin deserves death and that there can't be any atonement, any forgiveness without a payment. And that, of course, is why there's a death right at the heart of the gospel. The Lord Jesus came not just to teach or model good behavior, but to die. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. His death paid for our forgiveness. There could be no forgiveness, no atonement, no peace without it. But by that death, atonement and forgiveness is ours. That's the third and final thing to see here. The third thing this writer wants us to leave with, and that is atonement's power. One more feature these stories have in common to notice, and that is that Uh, Atonement for sin in both chapters, to some degree at least, temporarily at least, it works. It really does divert the judgment of God. In chapter 21, Saul's descendants are put to death. It's a tragic scene that's seen through the response of this lady, Rizpah. It's tragic, but it is effective. Once their bodies, along with the bodies of Saul and his son Jonathan, are given a proper burial, judgment is averted. See that in verse 14 of chapter 21. They did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And we see something similar in chapter 24. Chapter 24 ends after three days of terrible plague with David setting up an altar to the Lord and offering sacrifices. Symbolically speaking, he he makes atonement through the death of animals for the sin of the people. And again, look at the result in the final verse. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. To some degree at least, temporarily at least, in both these chapters, it works. There is, by the way, another puzzle in chapter 24. I mean, these chapters are just full of puzzles, aren't they? Um, But just notice one in, in chapter 24. Notice when the Lord seems to relent from his judgment. Because he seems to do it twice. Did you spot that as we read it through? You might have missed it. He relents once in verse 16 of chapter 24. We read that uh, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, it is enough. 
And then he seems to relent again in verse 25, after David had offered an atoning sacrifice. Did he relent twice, or did he relent once? And if he relents once, why has it given us twice? Well, I think perhaps it's described twice at different stages to remind us that though David's sacrifice was necessary, which is why we're told it afterwards, the decision to relent was still an act of God's free mercy. And that's why it's given before the sacrifice. It's telling us that the sacrifice didn't force God's hand. He wasn't then obliged to forgive because David raised an altar. God's forgiveness came from his mercy. His forgiveness comes not because he has to, but because he wants to. And though justice cries out for judgment, God's heart bends toward mercy. Well, that's something David had already experienced, of course, when he confessed after Bathsheba. He knew something of the mercy of God, which is why when he was offered those three terrible options in chapter 24, verse 13, notice, why did he choose plague rather than, say, pursuit by enemies? Have a look at his logic in verse 14 of chapter 24. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David knew human judgment can go too far. Our judgment can go too far, can't it? Someone slights us and we hit back far too hard. We speak too harshly. We punish for too long. But God's judgment is calm and controlled and proportionate, and it's beautifully matched by his mercy. His mercy is great. And it's his mercy that chooses to accept David's sacrifice offered there on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Strange, isn't it, by the way, how many verses Arona the Jebusite gets at the end of chapter 24? Why is that site so important? Well, keep a finger here, and would you just flick to 2 Chronicles chapter 3? Just flick on a, a few books to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. We're jumping ahead a little bit in time here from 2 Samuel to 2 Chronicles to David's son, Solomon. And this is what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1. Then Solomon, David's son, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, or Arona, the Jebusite. So when Solomon began to work on the temple, where does he choose to build it? On Mount Moriah, that is the place years before, where Abraham had been told to sacrifice his only son before the Lord had provided a substitute ram instead, and on the exact threshing floor that David had bought, and made atonement for Israel's sin. And so that site, for generations to come, would be the center of Israelite life. Not a war memorial, not a parliament building, but a place of atonement. A tangible reminder of what sin deserved, and a reminder of Israel's greatest need, the wonderful, forgiving, atoning mercy of God. 
So we began by asking why this is a fitting end to the book. What is this ending teaching us about the kind of leader we need? And I think now we might have the answer. The kind of leader we need, the kind of leader the world needs more than anything else, is a leader who can pay, who can atone for our sin. A leader who can pay the price our sin deserves and give us forgiveness and peace with God. David succeeds temporarily. His atonement would prove to be short-lived. After all, all David could offer in the end were animals on an altar, just a, a symbolic atonement. Israel's sin would return, their guilt would return, and eventually it would lead them into exile in God's judgment. And even that temple that Solomon built on Mount Moriah couldn't save Israel from what they deserved. What was needed was a leader who really could atone, one who could offer the ultimate sin-bearing sacrifice to remove guilt once and for all. And when the Lord Jesus came, the people thought that Rome was their biggest problem and liberation was their greatest need. And still today, people want Jesus to be a teacher and a prophet and a good example. But if Jesus is to be the leader we really need from God, he must take away our guilt. And that's exactly what he's done by his death on the cross. The wages of sin is death. But the Lord Jesus in love has died for our sin. If you're a Christian, your penalty has been paid on the cross. Your debt is canceled. Justice is satisfied. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There has been a death so that you can live. And the Christian life is then lived in constant gratitude for that amazing sacrifice. The Christian lives their life saying, thank you, God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, the Lord Jesus is the leader you need as well. By all means, take him as an example. Yes, listen to him as a teacher. But first, trust in him as a savior. If you're willing, he will count his death as yours. He'll take your guilt upon himself. He'll count the death your guilt deserves as his own. The leader you need, the leader the world needs, is the one leader who can atone for your sin. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us not the leader we asked for, but the leader that you knew we need most of all. Thank you for a leader after your own heart, the leader of your choice, and the one person who could lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. We thank you for him, and we pray that you would help us to appreciate him and his saving death and to put all of our trust in him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.